You're listening to TIP. And God bless America, but like the U.S. is like the greatest survivor bias experiment of all time, where every single time we've been on the precipice of like potentially dying, we've came back even stronger. I believe in freedom and like our systems and everything. I think they make robustness to allow that to happen, but I don't really know. Like maybe it was a lucky run. On today's episode, I sit down to chat with Dr. Wes Gray. Wes earned an MBA and a PhD in finance from the University of Chicago, where he studied under Nobel Prize winner Eugene Fama. Today, Wes runs Alpha Architect, which is an asset management firm dedicated to empowering investors through education. During the episode, I chat with Wes about whether owning the S&P 500 gives investors enough international exposure or not what momentum investing is and why it works, how retail investors can utilize a momentum strategy, why a stock's price going up can improve the actual fundamentals of a company, and much more. Without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Wes Gray. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Clay Fink. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Wes Gray. Wes, welcome to the show. Hey, Clay. Thanks for having me here. In preparation for this interview, I was listening to one of your episodes with Preston and Stig on We Study Billionaires back in 2016. And Preston asked you if you're taking any money off the table in the equity markets due to how expensive it was. And it's pretty funny looking back in retrospect, considering how much farther the stock market has run since then. The S&P 500 is up over 2x since that time period. With that, I wanted to ask you if your strategy as a value investor has changed over the last five years since that interview with the market environment we've seen since then. You know, I would love to go back and cheat to know what I said. Let's just see if I maintain consistency. So my guess is I probably said, I think the thing's totally overvalued, but I don't care what I think. I follow trends. And if the trend is strong, I own the market. Regardless of valuation, if the trend is not strong, I start getting more skeptical and I'm, I'm willing to move out of the way. Hopefully, I said something along those lines because uh, my ideas have not changed on that subject. We'll have to fact check that. But my philosophy is still the same today. If the market is trending and it's strong, it doesn't care about valuations. We're in a sentiment world and fundamentals are less important to trying to make money. Clearly, we're in one of those markets right now. Maybe in recent memory here, it's gotten a little bit more shaky, at least on the gross stock side of things. But I'm still of the same philosophy. If a market's trending, be willing to own it. If it's not trending, you know, that's when you might want to think about being more defensive and risk off. And it's specific to value investing, like our process, our approach. Honestly, the only thing we've changed there is made it simpler and easier to understand. But fundamentally, we haven't changed anything, right? Same process. You could take the quantitative value book we wrote in 2012 with Toby, who you probably know. And it's fundamentally, it's 99% the same that we talked about back then. That's what we're still doing today, unfortunately. It's not the past 10 years, but 
you know, we still fundamentally believe in buying cheap, high quality around the globe and we'll continue to do that. One thing that is unique for you relative to many of the other people we bring on the show is your academic background. You got your PhD in finance and worked as a finance professor for a number of years. So I'm curious how you maybe see the world of investing differently than others through that lens. I would say the key difference is I just had to eat way more humble pie because I started off as obviously a fundamental stock picker, totally obsessed with discretionary, try to be Warren Buffett type deals. I think what happens is once you go into the highest levels of academic research, the currency of that realm is not how much money did you make or how'd you beat the market. It's all about like intellectual heft. And so it's a great environment to go peer to peer in a place where people just want to tell you you're an idiot and your ideas suck. And so I think through that experience, I've just gotten a lot more used to just recognizing that probably not as smart as I ever thought I was going to be. There's a lot of really smart folks out there. And for me, it's just all about keeping it simple and sticking to systems, not trying to outthink it. One of the things that comes to mind related to that and related to the academic background you have is that investing after a year, you might have the stock you buy, it might do really, really well. But it's difficult to know if it did well because for the reasons you originally thought it would do well, or if it was just purely based on luck. And I think just looking at the academic side of that is really interesting, I think. That's another huge component besides humble pieing is one of the whole points of going to a PhD program is basically to learn how to do good research. And as a lot of people are aware, not just in the investing realm, but in every realm, like being good at research and understanding how data can be manipulated, studies can be manipulated, and you can basically make the data sing whatever song you want. I think that's important training to have. So you basically just don't believe anything anyone puts out there until you replicate it under your own conditions, kind of like doing the good old fashioned scientific method. And a lot of people just don't have that capability. Like it's just too much knowledge, too much data, too much program requirements. And so we have that luxury where, yeah, great. That's an interesting idea. I don't believe it. I don't care what, I don't care how many Harvard PhDs you have, because guess what? We're going to go replicate it under our conditions, maybe extend the sample, beat it up here or there, and convince ourselves it's a good idea where we just haven't had that unique skill set by being trained in the dark arts of uh, doing academic research. It's very interesting. You are a very data-driven investor, and we're going to talk a little bit about momentum investing. But first, I wanted to ask you about finding value internationally. There's a lot of talk of investors looking internationally for value due to how expensive the US market has gotten on a relative basis. For investors that are broadly diversified in the US market and with how widespread companies are becoming as far as expanding internationally, is owning something yeah. like the S&P 500 getting an investor enough international exposure to hedge the risk of the US market specifically taking a beating? There might be an element of that, but the better way to think about this is what you want to own and at what price. So for example, let's take the most simple example. Acme company that's it, that trades in the US but has 100% of its revenue in outside of the US and it sells for a PE of 30. Then you got XYZ company that trades in Europe and has 100% of its business in the US 
but it trades at 20. I would rather own the European one because it's fundamentally cheaper, even though it has 100% of its revenue in the States, right? So when people make that argument like, oh, well, I already, why would I go international? Because I could just own US stocks. Well, yeah, but you're paying 30 times earnings versus 20. And international companies, it's not like they only do business in international. They do business in the States a lot of times at a higher frequency than we do business over there. I would say from perspective of just a value investor and some stats for you, like right now we run like systematic value, US systematic value international. On the US side, like the operating income yield on, on our US funds, like probably around 13, 14%, which is a lot. The US market is 4%, so it's triple. But in the international market, it's almost 17%. And the international market itself is probably, I don't know, 5 to 6% yield. You can just, on an absolute basis, find way better deals internationally. And so I think you probably want to invest everywhere, be globally diversified. And it makes sense to just go to where the cheapness is and not rely on the old Warren Buffett quote, which a lot of times he simplifies a lot of things that people get lost in the weeds. That he probably wouldn't tell you that all the time. A lot of people are like, well, Warren Buffett said just owed 90% US stocks, 10% cash. Well, yeah, maybe, but that's just because some reporter asked him to, for a simple answer to a simple question. Does he do that? No. He makes a ton of acquisitions outside the States, you know? So watch what people do, not what they say. That makes sense to me. Now, let's dive into a topic that is very unique and something that you know a lot about, and that's momentum investing. Could you talk to our audience about what momentum investing is? Sure. So the first thing I would like to highlight is this audience is probably more value-minded. And just so you know, I'm on the same team, right? Like I'm genetically programmed to be a value investor, totally get it. You know, it makes way more sense to me. But unfortunately, after enough beatdown, I've came around to evidence-based investing as well and just believing in the humans and they love fear and greed, right? And I always tell people the easiest way to think about it is value is kind of the fair trade, right? Buy stuff everyone hates, hold your nose, wait for a long time, take the pain, and then eventually it works. But there's another thing in humans called greed. And why aren't we exploiting that, right? Or the beauty contest. It, the world is not about fundamentals all the time. It's about selling something for more than you bought it for in the end. And so that's just high level background. So you don't think I'm some wacko technical momentum trader. I'm part of the religion here, people, but momentum is also interesting. And essentially what it is, is it's just buying winners. So stocks that are doing really well relative to all the other ones, in general, we want to own those securities because they tend to keep on winning. And they're very different than the exposures you're going to get from buying value portfolios, essentially. Is momentum investing essentially taking advantage of the psychological side of investing where a lot of people want to buy assets that are going up and momentum strategy essentially rides the wave of new buyers coming in, continually pushing up the prices? Yeah, I think that's definitely an element of it. Like it's the greed component and the FOMO component. And it's just like all assets, once they get the ball rolling on FOMO, it just attracts more money because people love shiny rocks. So I would say that's certainly one aspect of the psychology that contributes to momentum. 
The other one is ironically underreaction to the positive news that price momentum brings to security. And I always give the examples of like, it's called reflexivity. But the concept is, you know, if you're trying to attract talent, attract buzz, trying to acquire companies, I always say like Amazon has a way cheaper cost to capital because they can go make a purchase of Whole Foods with their stock and it costs them nothing. Whereas a value player that has bad price action, you know, they have to pay cash. And so there's a lot of benefits to having fundamentally really strong price action. You think about not Kathy Wood anymore, but before Kathy Wood blew up, like Kathy Wood, Elon Musk, you know, Amazon, these people have this special trump card where they're against their comrades they compete against, their cost of capital ability to get stuff done is just way cheaper when you have great price action because you can essentially use your your stock to like improve your fundamentals, but in like a reflexive way. You could track better talent. There's a lot of things I think are second level thinking that are actually tied to price momentum that retroactively contribute to fundamentals in a way that value investors never appreciate because they're so focused on like what's going on here and now. Now I'm not going to say they're not second level thinkers, but it's just the nature of humans. Most people are first level thinkers. And I think momentum has some interesting second level effects on fundamentals. And so in many respects, they're kind of a value trade in that way because people underreact to potentially better news than, than they were expecting. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. 
We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. All right, back to the show. You mentioned that companies that have a strong price action can have a lower cost of capital. Could you dive a little bit deeper into that and what the cost of capital is and how that works? So let's just take an example of Amazon versus Walmart. Like an Amazon is a great example when they bought Whole Foods, right? When Amazon bought Whole Foods in a stock purchase, their stock went up more than the acquisition cost. So it was basically free. Whereas Walmart has to go out and pay billions of dollars to buy jet.com with cold hard cash, right? And maybe there's some stock involved in that deal. I don't know all the intricate details. This is just a quick example. But the concept is example might be like Elon Musk and Tesla versus GM or Ford, right? Let's say they're equally going to go out there and try to raise money for EV, you know, electric vehicles. I guarantee that Elon Musk could go raise that capital for basically free because people love everything about it. The price is there. He's made so many people rich. He'll throw money at that problem like no other. Whereas GM, if they have to go to the market to raise capital, they're going to throw hard money at the problem. When I say by cost of capital, what is the charge that the market kind of imposes on you and the return that they expect for you to use their money? Whereas Elon can go raise capital at valuations and you know, at nosebleed levels, they probably expect a return, even though they don't think it is probably zero, right? Whereas if GM goes to the marketplace and tries to add, get money to fund EV, they're going to have to pay people a return. Because they're going to be like, well, I don't trust you enough. Like, you're ugly. Elon's way cooler, which I actually agree with. He is really cool. But, you know, I wouldn't necessarily want to be an investor in his offering versus like GM, because I'm sure the GM offering, I can extract like, well, I need to get at least 10, 15, 20% returns on this investment. Whereas if I were to impose that on Elon, he'd be like, well, I'm not talking to you. I'm going to go talk to all these other people that'll, I could raise equity at like a thousand times PE ratio. So that's what I mean by cost of capital. It's basically, what do you have to like put out there as fish bait to get the fish to bite so you can like catch them? And a lot of times firms or institutions that have really good price action because it kind of self-reinforces how awesome they are, at least in a short-term memory sense, their capability to raise capital and get things done is just a lot less than people that their stocks in the shitter And again, that's just more of like a human psychology thing. The other thing you could think about, another just kind of simplifying example, is let's say you're an engineer and you may not know a lot about finance and like valuation or fundamentals, but you know that when you're an engineer and you go work for a tech company, you get paid in stock. Then you go, you're not a finance person, so you probably use past performance as an indication of how great your option value is going to be. Want to work for the firm that's had amazing 10x price action? all your friends are getting rich, you're going to go work for like a firm that had an 80% drawdown. And they're like, oh God, like who would want to own those options? So even though fundamentally, 
like they might want to actually look at the actual valuations on the companies they're about to work for when they get those options issued to them. Most humans don't think like that. They're going to be attracted to the shiny rock of I'm going to go work for whatever, Google or Microsoft right now. And then I don't know, I don't know what tech firms have crappy price action, but like, let's say there's some crappy price action tech firm there, you know, let's say Intel. That's probably not the case because they're a value stock right now, but pretend Intel had bad price performance and they're competing against like Microsoft right now for talent and the stock prices are diverging. Those engineers are going to want to at the margin be willing to work less and harder for an opportunity to be at Microsoft versus like Intel because it's just lame. It's just price action creates weird incentives because there's a lot of people that are not just investors, but constituents that are just performance chasers, basically. That's kind of a fundamental, you know, humans are like flies. They see light, they just run to it and die. The same thing like people, like they see big performance. Even though we know what happens, you're going to die if you chase performance. They just go to that light and kill themselves. And it, it happens <laughs> It's just, I don't know. It just is what it is, I would say. But momentum is a way to try to take advantage of that. Like, essentially, you're selling the light. Great. Come on over to my light. We'll try to catch a little spread along the way. You don't have to do that. But the problem with momentum, especially for someone like me who's so wired to be a value investor, you know, if you see what the computer tells you to do, you're just not going to want to do it. And so there may be other people that are not wired like that, and maybe it's easier. So for example, me, like when I look at the value names, I understand most of the marketplaces be like, God, why would you run on that turd? But to me, that just smells like money fundamentally, right? I get excited because I just, I'm wired for being a value person. Whereas on those momentum names, again, I could see someone out there that could probably do this in a discretionary way. But I need the automation of the computer to force me to do it. Because if I start getting in the weeds, I, I just know my own biases will prevent me from doing the actual momentum strategy that actually has the data and the evidence and the psychology behind it. We're just fully automated. Not saying that's for everybody, but definitely for me. It's really hard to ignore this idea of momentum because Preston actually ended up putting together a momentum tool on our TIP finance tool on our website. So I find this just really, really interesting. Do you think that momentum investing debunks the idea that you can't time the market? I mean, there's so many things that debunk that theory. It's just the problem with like the don't can't time the market is that's through the lens of US investor psychology, who it's always paid to be a buy and hold. Just think about it intuitively. Like if I'm a holder in like Zimbabwe equity, are you going to be wired to, like, I guarantee you ask any like Rhodesian who's now a Zimbabwean, hey, you think you should just buy and hold equity through thick and thin, no matter what, till it goes to zero? They're going to be like, you should have risk management. You know, so I would say the same thing applies in all markets. Like you should probably trend follow or like, you know, maybe, or use momentum or momentum signals because in the end, like you don't want to ride a train to zero. And it just happens to be the case. And God bless America, but like the US is like the greatest survivor bias experiment of all time, where every single time we've been on the precipice of like potentially dying, we've came back even stronger. I believe in freedom and like our systems, and everything. I think they make robustness to allow that to happen, but I don't really know. Like maybe it was a lucky run. 
So I would say in general, using momentum, using trend, and this idea that you should risk manage and think about your exposures, i.e. you should market time, is just common sense. I think people that don't incorporate some element or ability to market time are just crazy. Yeah, I think Meb Faber has a great poll he always does. Would you own the S&P at 50 times? Great. A lot of people say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Buy and hold, baby. Vanguard. Then he says, what about 500 times? And they're like, yeah, 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 buy and hold, go. And he's like, okay, what about a trillion times earnings? You're still going to own it? Like at some point, you just can't be religious or dogmatic about anything in the marketplace. And so any, anytime you hear people make the claim that, oh, market timing is a bunch of bunk, you can't be done, they're just not thinking straight about it. Now, should you be engaged in trading? Should you like day trade and not consider frictional costs, taxes, and like your behavioral biases to like want to do something all the time? Well, of course. But you shouldn't also at the same time write off being tactical and being savvy about, you know, hey, we might want to avoid the S&P 500 if it's at a trillion times earnings. Just saying. Is that market timing? Yeah. But that's also common sense at some level. So is it fair to say that some portion of your portfolio is these value picks that in general, you're just holding buy and hold for the long term? And these momentum picks are another portion of your portfolio that you are incorporating some sort of market timing and figuring out when to get in and get out. Even on value, we incorporate elements of risk management, even in like a deep value strategy. So for example, like in quant value, the fundamentals of that process is upfront, we're going to boot anything out that has like horrific momentum or horrific fundamentals, what have you. So already, like, let's say you own some stock that is really cheap, but all of a sudden it's got like horrific momentum and horrific accounting problems, well, we're getting rid of that. We also have like large elements of quality in there. And so same thing, you can be like, the energy patch was like this probably like five or six years ago, where it's like, oh my God, this is really cheap. Oh my God, it's also like total junk. And like, why would you ever invest in this? So we would get rid of that fundamentally, right? So, so even in our value system, there's a lot of like fire alarms on there where we'll be willing to either on quality, degrading quality, really crappy momentum. Just be like, you know what? That's really cheap, but why would I want to mess with that? Because it's like playing with fire. So it's built in there. And then obviously a momentum strategy. I mean, that one's obvious. Like if it has momentum, we own it. If it doesn't, we get rid of it. And unlike value where you can kind of like take your lumps and you don't need to trade it a lot to get it to work, like in momentum, which is very opposite because it's much more psychology-based strategy, you can't like rebalance a momentum fund once a year because you'll die, right? You need to be able to get out of things that are blowing up because that's momentum, right? And then when things change, it, it changes quick. It's just a different strategy. It has a lot more or a lot less leniency with respect to turnover and trading and needing to move. Where value investing kind of, you can sandbag it, go slow, take your time, and you're not going to get hurt too bad generally. I'm curious, what did your momentum picks look like in March 2020 once things started to turn? Did your tool figure out, yeah, something's going on with these momentum plays. They're starting to turn over. So were you able to get out prior to most of the damage was done? And were you getting back in? Tell me a little bit about that. So in general, in March 2020, if we got lucky in momentum, like value got absolutely destroyed, as you can imagine. It just didn't matter. There was no bids. I think QVAL was down like 50%. And then if you were in smaller names, 
I know people that run funds like Intramont, they had like 75, 80% drawdowns, which is crazy, right? Momentum also obviously had a big drawdown, but because by nature it was owning high momentum names going into that, and a lot of the high momentum names were like tech, the things that just for whatever reason got relatively lucky, they didn't get beat down as hard. And then also just by dumb luck, like coming out of that March 2020, you know, we have this fund, it's called QMOM. The thing went on like the biggest bender of all time. I didn't even know about it because I like I was an idiot in like in March was like, hey, I'm doubling down on QVAL and IVAL. This is too crazy. I was all proud of myself because, you know, like a year later they're up a lot. But then I was at, but actually I was an idiot because if I had bought like the momentum stuff, it would have been 2x that. Momentum on a relative basis did well in March 2020. But that just is what it is, right? Like, you know, it's all about the luck and the, what the market gods bring you. Like momentum in the last year has annihilated, where it's like value's gone the exact opposite. It's one of those things where who knows? That's why I like to own them both. But, you know, sometimes they work, sometimes they don't. How do you determine which companies to utilize in a momentum strategy? I mean, so we, again, having my own bias, and this is not just me, but like Jack, who's my partner in crime, I've done all this research. We're value guys. So we always think like, God, when we do momentum, we could probably improve that by like doing some quality checks or like avoiding these obviously total horrific companies from a value perspective. And every time we've tried to impose our thoughts, which we never just do thoughts, we always go test them. They just don't work. Like with momentum, if you want to capture the momentum effect and you want to try to exploit greed and exploit like this, you know, reflexivity and market price action, you have to focus straight up on either price action or you could look at fundamental momentum too. Like if you look at like earnings, keep bidding the earning expectation. It's the same idea because they're basically one and the same effectively. But the minute you try to impose like quality or, or valuation, anything that smells like a value investor was involved, you're just going to ruin the momentum strategy, period. I've tried to make momentum feel like value. It just doesn't help the situation. I wish it did. It just doesn't. Something like Rivian, you know, this company that went public with zero cars sold and it ran up to a $100 million market cap. I have no idea what the stock's at now, but for a period of time, yeah. it was doing very, very well. It's like a lot of things. That's why it's important to be able to do research and like test ideas you have. You don't want to go back testing, run amok. But if you have ideas and you think there's like first principles behind them, you know, it's always good to just test them a variety of ways. And we've done that. But the issue with momentum is I think the first principle, now that we have a much clearer understanding of how and why it works, it's the same thing with like, if I'm a value guy, why does that work? Well, it's probably because you're buying things that are, let's be honest, probably a little bit riskier. But then also we're just buying things that no one else wants to own. And the expectations are so horrific and so bloody and nasty that you just have that opportunity. But the trade-off is you got to deal with the pain and anguish of and you're just trying to take advantage of fear in the marketplace. Where momentum, like the first principles on that is it is a shiny rock greed trade. And to the extent you believe humans like shiny rocks and like greed and like the flies fly into the light and they always die, you know, as long as you believe in that as a first principle, why would you do stuff that takes away from that first principle? 
And in momentum, if I'm putting quality or valuation bound, like all I'm doing is I'm no longer in the greed trade. Now I'm back in the value trade. But the whole point of doing momentum was to do something different because I already do value investing, right? So investing is tough. Being lucky is great. It would be a lot better to just be lucky than overthink this stuff. I like Preston's Bitcoin move. Not saying that was lucky, Preston's listening, but hey, there's probably a lot of luck involved in a lot of things in life. One thing you mentioned there is that value investing a lot of times consists of buying companies that are a little bit riskier. Could you expand on why you believe that to be the case? So this is something that like value investors don't like to admit because they're like, you know, I know how the religion works. Like, well, buy buy a margin of safety or whatever. And they got a lot of cash in the till, blah, blah, blah. Right. But but let's be honest. Like, let's go look at like Kohl's versus Amazon. Like, okay, Kohl's, I'm just making this stuff. I don't know what Kohl's sells for right now, but it used to sell for like eight times PE. And it's got high quality. They make money, blah, blah, blah. Amazon obviously sells for like 50 times that and, you know, what have you. And so the minute you take that bet on the valuation spread between Amazon and Kohl's, well, what is Amazon has a low cost of capital, i.e. a high valuation, because fundamentally to execute on their business plan, it's less risky, right? Whereas Kohl's, to be able to transition to this new world, they got to do a lot of things right. They got to figure out their online presence. They got to figure out how to protect their turf with their stores. So it's just fundamentally riskier because also they have assets in place in the ground. They got a lot more operating leverage there where Amazon doesn't even have stores, right? So a lot of times just the business models tied to quote unquote value stocks, i.e. cheap, you know, high quality things that sell for less than 10 PE versus other securities that sell for, you know, whatever, 50. And I'm not saying that risk explains all that spread, but it would be kind of foolish and the evidence would suggest that you're a fool, that the differential in the valuation between classic value stocks and growth stocks it's not just 100% mispricing and the market's stupid because they don't know that your shiny rocks is actually a shiny diamond. It's you're just buying more risk. And so you should get paid. If you're going to buy companies that are fundamentally riskier, their business model is more at risk or whatever, yeah, you should earn extra money because you're doing something that other people don't want to do. And now that said, I also agree that people throw the baby out with the bathwater a lot in these value stocks. And so the difference between like the 10 PE and 30 PE, yeah, part of that is probably for risk, but there also is a part that people are just crazy and they just don't want to, they would rather own Tesla than GM or whatever. Who knows how to quantify like the mix between the risk and mispricing, but I think it'd be foolish to not suggest that there's probably elements of both involved. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Your Kohl's and Amazon example, because obviously Kohl's is completely being disrupted and displaced by Amazon. Yeah. But I think someone could argue, say, something like Berkshire Hathaway. I think somebody could argue that it's a great business at a reasonable price. Do you see that as something that's riskier than, say, like tech company or owning like the S&P 500? Or how do you look at that? It would depend. So I don't know the exact valuation discount on Berkshire's whole portfolio versus S&P right now. But regardless, the way I would analyze any situation is on the first principles of, okay, there's a valuation discount. I don't know what it is. It's 10%. Well, does 10% justify 
like maybe there is an additional risk, right? And maybe there isn't any mispricing. That'd just be something you have to analyze on a case-by-case basis. And this is what fundamental discretionary value investors rack their brains on all day. I do all this quantitatively and in the tells. I immediately am only going to buy stuff that's in the 10% cheapest of the entire market. So I'm never going to get into these pissing battles between Berkshire and XYZ because Berkshire is not the 10% cheapest stock, right? Like clearly it's probably more market efficiency price than in the tails. I just focus in the tails and then like fundamental discretionary managers, they can go quibble and quabble over the differences in the valuations on things like that. But the principles would still apply. And I would say, you know, without having a forensic deep dive or being up to speed on Buffett at the current time, just knowing how he invests, like fundamentally, whatever the heck he's investing in, almost certainly has more risk fundamentally tied to the economy, valuations aside, because he's going to be buying hard assets, things that free cash flow, energy stack, like all that kind of stuff. Whereas obviously the S&P is 25% in like tech. Right, which is putting valuations aside, just on a fundamental first principles of business risk. You know, I see less risk in Apple than it will actually Berkshire owns Apple, but that's not a great example. But whatever, Google, than I do in like the railroad station. I don't know if Buffett still owns that, but like they're just different businesses. Now, risk also is tied to the price you pay. Railroad at five times earnings might be way less risky than buying Google at five thousand times earnings. But that's something that people have to figure out, right? Like if there is additional risk, is it compensated or are you getting a good deal, right? And so that'd be something a fundamental investor would have to determine. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate out there, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing, 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024, and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing member of FINRA-SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into a partner bank where they can earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com disclosures 
slash high dash yield dash account. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. Have you seen momentum investing to be a really successful strategy over the past decade with us being in this really long bull market? Not really, actually. I was just actually looking up all the factors over the past 10 years for the US and international. Basically, if you're not familiar with factors, all that's trying to do is say like, hey, if I were to try to synthesize different characteristics of stocks, and we usually look at like value, the momentum, the quality, and the size. And I said, hey, like how have those factors done? Like if I tried to best I could isolate just how are those components returned? The interesting thing about the market over the past 10 years is in the US especially, is the only thing that's made money is lowish quality, super big beta stocks. Values over the last 10 years been a dog. Momentum's kind of like blah. Quality's kind of like blah. Like I said, like mega cat, like the size factor is kind of blah. It's really all about just been owning the S&P 500, honestly. And all factors across the board haven't been great. And so to the extent, like if you ran momentum and it was mega caps, you probably did okay, right? But if you did momentum and you had elements of like small or mid caps in there, because we know small as a strategy up until very recently has been a total dog, maybe the extra momentum juice you got was overcome by like the size anti-juice you got. So in general, all factors outside of just owning mega cap US stocks in the S&P at the highest mega cap levels, it hasn't done that well. In the international markets, it's a little bit different. You know, like you've had a little bit more mojo from momentum, but in general, you know, it's the same problem. Like value sucks, size sucks, quality was okay in international markets. But if you just want to keep quality out of it because it can co-found things, but if you just look at like size, momentum, and value, over the last 10 years globally, I would say none of them have been great and size has been terrible. It's kind of all about buying really big stocks that don't really have great momentum, aren't really especially cheap. It just kind of own passive markets, basically. And there's a lot of theories on why that might be. You know, I'm getting more and more open to the idea. Well, I've always been open to the idea that fun or flows matter, right? There's a thing called supply and demand in the market. Initially, I was a skeptic on the idea, like, well, you know, yeah, everyone just goes passive and they own S and P 500 stocks, like, no big deal. But at this point, it's such like an escalating pace and Vanguard every day is buying billions of dollars a day where they're literally 
their clients or someone is liquidating value, psi, whatever, and they're turning around and go and say, and buy S&P 500 stocks. So if you start doing that at scale and everyone's doing the same thing, of course, you're going to have influence on asset prices. And I think we have a realization, Vin, of the past 10 years, and I don't know when this will end, but stocks that are in the SP 500 that get the most capital contributions have obviously kicked butt. And if you did anything that's not that, you underperform, basically, no matter what it was, like pretty much everything that wasn't that underperformed the S&P because S&P is up like, I don't even know, it's like 80% annual returns for like the past 10 years. It's crazy. So honestly, nothing's worked that well. I should have just owned the S&P 500 the past 10 years. I've been a lot better off. Making a pretty good case for passive investing. I think that's a case for if I knew what I knew now 10 years ago, and I knew the moths would all go to the flame at the same time at scale, and just assume that you never have impact on prices and passives of free lunch. But, but we invest ex ante on a go-forward basis. And to me, anytime you have a situation where people perceive something that's free, has infinite supply, and always works better than something else, that never leads to outcomes that are favorable because those, those equilibriums are unstable. It's impossible to have a good that is free, unlimited, and always works. The markets are good about mean reversion. And I think the whole passive craze is about to like, I don't know when, because it'd be foolhardy to try to predict human psychology. But fundamentally, it's not in 50 years from now, it'll look like the nifty 50. It'll look like many other episodes in the marketplace. It's just crazy. So how can the typical retail investor use momentum investing in their own strategy? Probably the best thing I would say is most people, frankly, are never going to wrap their head around momentum investing, especially value investors. Like I got a whole book dedicated to value investors trying to convince themselves to do momentum. But you know, it's like the old saying, you bring a horse to water, they're not going to drink it. And that's fine. That's cool. Like I always tell people like, hey, only do things that you're convinced of. And things that Wes does, they could be the worst idea you ever had for you to do it, right? Like, and same thing for you may have like great ideas and they work amazing for you, but they would be the worst idea ever for me. So in general, I would say most value investors should probably not end up doing momentum. They truly believe in the thing in their bones, but they could still use it as a tool. So for example, let's say you're kind of anchored value as a philosophy. Well, then let's say you're going to go sell some securities. Let's say you have a stock, you own your portfolio, and you're like, man, it's getting a little pricey. It's like right at my target, but the momentum is like epic. Well, maybe you don't sell that. Maybe you hold on to it. And then it hits a point where momentum flatlines or breaks down. Okay, now I'll blow out of it. So, so maybe you use it as kind of like a tactical trading tool. Or, or on the opposite thing, let's say you're going to, you're questionable on selling something. You're like, well, you know, God, it's like pretty cheap, but, but I got this other name I kind of like. Maybe it's a little bit more expensive, but like the name that's marginally cheaper has like horrific momentum. And the other one that's marginally more expensive has like decent momentum. And they're both candidates for a sell. Hey, maybe you blow out the one that's got horrific momentum because we know on average owning baskets of low momentum securities, especially in the extreme 10%, is like the worst strategy on the planet Earth. 
even as a value investor, you could probably use these momentum things for like technical like indicators when to buy and sell at the margin. But you don't have to go full sell into the religion if you don't want to. So that might be a way to for people in the audience to use momentum as a tool if if you're not you know going to go all in and or go buy ETFs to do these sort of things. It reminds me of what people would call a value trap. Sometimes value investors will get into a stock because it has fallen so far because it's something that is not appreciated by the market and looks very cheap. Some of these companies that are falling in price are value traps because they end up falling another 25 or 50%. And these value investors that thought they were getting a good deal are stuck holding the bag. One of these stocks that fell for years is GameStop, and it's one that Preston and Stig talked about often, well before the short squeeze that eventually happened. That's actually a great example of price action affecting fundamentals, right? I'm a big GameStop fan as a user of the product. I got three kids now, so I don't get to use it as much as I used to, but I used to be a big gamer and still am. And so I liked it, but back in the day, I used to own it. It's a total value dog because it's just so cheap on cash flow basis and expectations were so terrible. But those guys couldn't get out of their own way trying to raise capital to help them out. All of a sudden, they go on the short squeeze, price action goes bonkers. And now because they can raise capital for like negative cost of capital, it seems, I don't know if that's a concept, you know, now they're like fundamentally in a better position as a business than they've ever been in the history of their lives because of price action. Obviously, the fundamentals of GameStop have not changed basically one iota for, in their core business. But now that their price action was so crazy, they actually it did fundamentally change because they raised capital at nothing. And now they can go do experiments on the cheap with other people's money. And who knows, they may break out and become like a SaaS. Co- you know, God only knows what they could do now. Yeah, they'll probably start getting into the NFT space or something. Yeah, because now they got free money to go burn on experiments, right? Because their cap- cost of capital is zero. So price action matters a lot. And if value investors don't incorporate how price action affects their businesses fundamentally, then, then they're missing out on, on like a key component of value investing, which is cost of capital. It's like a big variable in your DCF, as you know. So a momentum strategy, as you mentioned, requires frequent rebalancing with trading in and out of positions. How much of an effect do capital gains taxes have on a momentum fund? Trying to do momentum as a retail investor, unless you got your act squared away on like your execution frictional costs and or you got like a tax dodge, or not dodge, we'll call it avoidance. It's silly to do it, right? We never did momentum until we got the ETF wrap, because at least the ETF wrap, I can get rid of the problem. You know, I live in Puerto Rico now, so I can make a case to just do it organically because I don't pay taxes on cap gains. But outside of living in Puerto Rico or investing in it through an ETF, you know, unless you're going to use your qualified account, it makes no sense to do a momentum strategy on taxable money because you, know, you got to pay 50% back to Uncle Sam. It's not that good. Right. And that's just the tax, not to mention the frictional costs, right? Like momentum strategies, if you're going to do them right, on average, you're going to be looking at 200% turnover. And so if you're not really good at execution, you don't spend a lot of time thinking about impact costs, like how to execute the trades, and you're just like winging it, you're going to get destroyed in frictional costs. 
So unfortunately, and I hate to say this because I'm a big DIY fan, but momentum is just not for retail investors, period, as a system. Unfortunately, you should probably go, if you like it, go buy a product, go invest in someone else who's kind of doing this professionally. They're just in a better advantage position than you are. So do you think of your momentum strategy to try and enhance returns or diversify your equity exposure? I think it's highly contingent on the circumstance of the investor, right? So for example, if I go to Kathy Wood and I say, hey, Kathy, do you want a a momentum strategy? She might say, well, I don't know if that's a diversifier or a return enhancer, right? She's already got like banked up risk as far as the eye can see. So it's not going to do anything. Whereas let's say you're a value investor that's hardcore. I'd say, okay, you probably got higher expected returns in the market. And momentum is probably also an expectation got higher expected returns in the market. But from a diversification standpoint, it's a slam dunk, right? Because when your stuff's yin and this thing's yanging, and if you have two positive expected bets, but they're uncorrelated, you know, there's going to be a benefit from a portfolio standpoint. So in that case, diversification would be great. And then a third example might be like, okay, let's say you've got, you just hate stocks. They're too risky. You're like 20% stocks, 80% bonds, or you put your money under your mattress. You're basically under invested in equities, but you need kind of like high octane. I might say, well, instead of sandbagging it on like S&P for 20%, because you already got 80% of your money under your pillow, you know, something like that, like a momentum strategy is going to be able to kind of amp your exposure with the same dollars. So there it might be an expected return booster and probably maybe a little bit of a diversifier. So again, it can go either way. It just really depends on the situation and how you use it as a tool. Now you've mentioned trend following a few times during this episode, which sounds a lot like momentum and I'm not really familiar with trend following. So How does a trend following strategy differ from a momentum strategy? Great question. I wish you flagged me down earlier because it's not, it's all about semantics, unfortunately. So when I talk about momentum, I am speaking specifically to relative strength momentum in the context of stock selection. The best example is I see two stocks, stock A and B. Stock A is down 10%. Stock B is down 20%. When I say momentum, it would suggest that I would prefer A to B, right? Because on a relative basis, A is doing better than B. That's what they call momentum as it's used for stock selection. Trend following is not about comparing things at like at the same point in time across each other. It's about comparing the same thing over time. So for example, we had those same two stocks, A and B. A was down 10%, B was down 20%. With momentum, I would say, great, A is awesome, B sucks, I'm going to buy A and not buy B. With trend following, I would say, I'm not buying any of these things because A's trend sucks and B's trend sucks. So trend following is in reference to the, basically the absolute momentum on an individual security relative to itself, whereas momentum at least how I use it, is in reference to a stock picking strategy that's all about picking the relative best, but it still could have terrible trend. And so when I talk about trend falling, it's usually in reference to like broad asset classes, right? So if the S&P is, you know, over its whatever, 12-month moving average, 
own it. Otherwise, consider risk managing it, right? But it doesn't have anything to do about what stocks to own in the S&P. You know, do I own GameStop or do I own GM? That'd be more like in the realm of what I call momentum. It's a great question. And the problem is you need people to define it because some people call momentum. It's, so it's really just dependent on the definition and making sure you get down to brass tacks of what people are referring to. Wes, thank you so much for coming on to the Millennial Investing Podcast. You have your own momentum funds that if the listeners are interested in learning more about momentum, I highly recommend you check out his website. Before we close out the episode, Wes, tell us a little bit about your company, Alpha Architect, and where the audience can go to connect with you. So we kind of have two companies now. So Alpha Architect has a firm mission in Power Investor through education. It's alphaarchitect.com. Uh, and that's where you can learn about all the strategies and like all kinds of things related to factors. And then we have another business called etfarchitect.com, where the mission there is to help ETF sponsors win. And that, that business is focused on bringing other people to market who want to participate in the ETF game. So, you know, if any of your listeners want to convert into an ETF, launch an ETF, that's where they go. And then you can always follow me on Twitter, uh, just at Alpha Architect. And those are kind of three good places to, to find us, depending on what you're looking for. Awesome. Thanks again for coming on, Wes. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate it, Clay. Good chatting. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin. And every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.